If you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to open it? Um, we're going to be looking at, at a passage this morning that, trust me, is to do with Christmas. It won't seem like it, but it is. Micah chapter 5. Micah, Micah chapter 5. It is in uh, the end of the Old Testament and amongst the, the minor prophets. There's probably a section of this that we read every Christmas because um, it is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but I just want to take a moment this morning just to look at a bit more in detail what a prophecy that we probably hear part of every year, but we maybe don't know terribly well. Micah chapter 5. Um, we're going to read verses 2 down to the start of verse 5. We're going to start reading at the part that gets quoted in Matthew chapter 2. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of this God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. Will we take a moment and pray? Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. It's a lamp to our feet. As we look at it now, would you enlighten our eyes? Would you soften our hearts? And would you hear would we hear what you are going to say to us through your word with grace and with a way that we can apply it to our lives? We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. I wonder how many of you have started to get into the Christmassy mood. Hopefully this morning is the start of the getting into the Christmassy mood. I have even got a Christmassy tie on, which has sheep, that famous Christmas animal, um, covered it in Christmas tree lights. We have also begun watching our series of Christmas films. Boys and girls, who here has a favorite Christmas film? Oh, lots of hands going up. Brilliant. Does anybody here know the film Muppets Christmas Carol? Oh, what's maybe really sad is none of the kids' names have went up, but like a few of the people who are, I think we can agree, broaching on middle age have went up. So I've just aged myself terribly, but that's okay. My favorite Christmas film, in fact, one of my favorite films, because I think it's one of the greatest cin cinematic masterpieces that has ever been produced, is Muppet's Christmas Carol. I remember we didn't have it on VHS, but in the days of VHS, whenever you had to watch all the adverts at the start of the video, there was an advert for Muppet's Christmas Carol. And I thought, that is the best film ever. And I remember seeing it around at a friend's house, and I've been obsessed with it ever since, to the point where back whenever we were able to go to cinemas, um, that, I think, was the last film that we saw prior to lockdown, wasn't it, Zoe? Yep, was Muppet's Christmas Carol. I, I love it. And it's got everything you want. It has... The sophistication of Dickensian Victorian literature. It's got a great storyline, and most of all, it's got puppets. And what's not to love about that? But if you haven't seen the film, it follows the age-old story that I'm sure you have heard all sorts of variations on over the years, which is Scrooge, you know, grumpy old Scrooge, 
who is miserly and doesn't want to spend any money at Christmas, doesn't want to give his employees time off at Christmas, is visited by three ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And as he goes through this process, he encounters uh, the, the deep, deep richness that Christmas can bring. And as we read this passage in the Old Testament, it can seem very far off and removed from us. But I want you to think about it this morning a wee bit like a Christmas carol and see this little passage as a passage that gives us hope, hope for Christmas past, hope for Christmas present, and hope for Christmas future. Hope for Christmas past is how we'll start off looking at it. As I said, we're probably not terribly familiar with this passage, even though it's one that we read nearly every Christmas. And it's because the context is probably quite far removed from us. Whenever we read this passage, Micah is a prophet to what's called the northern tribes of Israel. Um, Under the king Rehoboam, who was David, David and Goliath, David, his grandson, the kingdom that had been the kingdom of God split in two. Two tribes, tribes of Benjamin and Judah, stayed in the south. And so if you hear people talk about the Jewish faith now or, or, or Jewish history, that is only about those two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And you can see Judah's where we get Jewish. Jewish from. Whilst if you were to look at the northern tribes, which are the other 10 tribes of the people of God, they broke off because this king, Rehoboam, had put a huge burden of labor upon them to try and build things in Jerusalem. And so they rebelled and they cut off and they were never reconciled in the Old Testament. Instead, these 10 tribes who went off to the north experienced wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And it wasn't just that the kings were bad because they were incompetent. It was that the kings were selfish. They were concerned with only their own glory, concerned with only the things that would advance their name. And they were also caught up in the religious worship of the lands around them. And they began to lead the people of God away from the true worship. And so we read a little bit of bad news in amongst a passage that is good news. If you look down at verse three, it says, therefore he shall give them up until the time. And and what Micah is referring to there is that because of the wickedness of the kings and because these tribes have turned away from God, something quite scary is going to happen, which is God is going to give them up for a time for judgment. But, as it would be miserable and not terribly Christmassy if I just left you that God can abandon you and let you go home, there is good news here. Because though it says, therefore he shall give them up until the time, we read that the time is coming in the second half of verse three, when she who is in labor has given birth This is where we begin to see a wonderful promise in the Old Testament, back in history, where in the midst of all sorts of struggles, in the midst of the oppression of the people, in the midst of wickedness, amidst of a time whenever everybody wanted things to get better but couldn't imagine how, the people of God are given a promise, I will send somebody who will put everything right. That is what is the heartbeat of the promise of Christmas. You know, we talk about kings and heralds and promises, and we maybe get lost because it's quite archaic language to a lot of us. But whenever we talk about that language, what we are saying is that 
Jesus was the promised coming king for this people who were in need of somebody to save them from the horrible positions they had found them in and the horrible kings that they had labored under. And we see the fullness of the hope that Jesus gives them whenever he comes. We read in that last section of verse three that the rest of the brothers shall return, that there, there, there will be a sense of peace amongst the relationships of the people of God as those tribes and the people are reconciled. And not just those tribes, but all the people of the earth will be brought into the household of God. We see that this new king who is coming will be a shepherd. And shepherd would have been common language in the ancient world to for a king to describe his relationship to his people. But whenever the Jewish faith uses it, whenever the Israelites use it, that is an explicit reference to the care and the love and the affection that King David had for his people and that Jesus would go on to have for his people. We read as well that the strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord would be with this king. He would be a king who would come and point everyone back to their true faith to God. That they would, in the second half of verse four, dwell secure, dwell secure, have peace not just in their relationships, but in their surroundings as well. This was a promise of a coming king and the hope of a coming king who would give them a peace that is with each other, with relationships, a peace in their surroundings around them. But also we read in this final wonderful section in verse five, that he himself would be their peace. Now, whenever Jesus was born on the earth, people were confused because they thought that this coming king, this promised coming king, was meant to be the sort of king who would bring about peace in circumstances alone. And they didn't buy into that wonderful promise that he himself would be their peace. Because it could have said in this passage that this king would come and he will impart peace. It could have said that he will bring peace. It could have said he will teach peace. But instead he said, it says that this coming king would be our peace. And for the ancient people who would have been hearing these words, it was a hope that one day, one day, there would come a wonderful king who would give them the peace that they longed for. One day they would know peace, not simply as a state of not being at war, but they would know peace as a person. So we read in Isaiah 9, a prince of peace. But if that's hope in the past, what about us now? Now, we might be in difficulties now, but we probably aren't looking forward to a future king who will bring this sort of great company, this sort of great hope. What about us now? How is Jesus' birth not just hope for a ancient people who lived in the desert, but how is Jesus' birth hope for us here and now? I think in this passage when we see promises of security, of reconciliation and gospel peace, we can see that there is something for us now bound up in this passage. How many of us would say that we feel at peace? And I don't mean peace in a, you sit and cross your legs and go, um. I mean, how many of you do not feel stressed week by week? How many of us feel that we are running pillar to post? How many of us feel that we are not living up to the expectations that we thought that our lives live up to? How many of us, really, if we're honest with ourselves, 
how many of us have some sense of peace. There's a book that was published this year by Princeton University of Pre- University Press called Why We Are Restless. It was two political philosophers um, as part of the Furman Institute who were dealing with what they saw was a huge problem amongst their students. These really gifted young people who were coming to university, who were at the peak of their intellectual game and yet were miserable. They saw the levels of depression and anxiety skyrocketing amongst their students at their university, and they tried to get to the bottom of it in this book. And the reason they, they give, and these are not Christian writers at all, the reason that these two academics gave for the rise of the restlessness amongst their students was that they knew the breadth of their existence, but not its height. They knew its breadth. They knew of all the things that they could do. They could be doctors, they could be lawyers, they could be academics. They could live anywhere on the earth. They could do whatever they wanted. They could be free to live however they pleased and do whatever they want, but they lacked the height of their existence. They lacked purpose. They lacked meaning. They lacked all the things that these two academics admitted were given to them by the Christian faith in the culture that they had grown up in. And now that they didn't have it, they were restless and they didn't have any peace. So do we have peace? Or are we restless? Are we struggling with the breadth of our existence without ever knowing its height? I think we sometimes do the gospel a disservice because so often whenever we talk about the gospel, we talk about it as pie in the sky when you die. It's something that is far off and distant and does not give hope to us now. And yet, as Presbyterians, we believe a little book called the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I quote from fairly regularly. And one of the questions is, what hope, what benefits does the Christian gospel give us in this life? And the Catechism says that it gives us the hopes of justification, of adoption, and of sanctification. Big words ending in shun that I'm sure we don't use every day. But wonderful, wonderful hopes. Justification. You've maybe heard the phrase, just as if I've never never sinned. That is what it means, but it means so much more. Because the Catechism says that it's it's an act of God's grace where God accepts us as righteous. He accepts us. That's the gospel we believe. That's the gospel we celebrate, that God accepts us through his son as righteous. He adopts us. And what is adoption? It is an act of God's free grace whereby we receive the rights and privileges of the son of God. We have privileges. We are brought into the family. And we are sanctified. And what is sanctified? It is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. What is the height of your existence this morning? It's that you are accepted by God through his son. It's that you are brought into the family and enjoy all of the privileges and benefits that Jesus Christ himself enjoyed as having God as his father. It means that you do not need to be clogged by the guilt and shame that you might feel of what could have been. 
but you know that God is renewing you, all of you, from the inside out. That is the heart and the height of your existence. There is a great peace to be known in taking these truths of the gospel and savoring them, chewing on them, and knowing to love them in a way that will bring peace. I think so often the way we think about gospel truth is often the way we think about salad. We know we should eat it, and we know we should enjoy it, but if we're honest with ourselves, we put up with it and push through it. When really what we want it to be is the way that we indulge in a dessert because we love it, because it's sweet, because it satisfies, because there's a richness to it that we just want more and more and more of it. That's why the gospel gives us hope because it gives us something to love and it gives us something to savor. And can I encourage you this Christmas in the midst of everything, savor this good news. Not like you savor salad, but as you savor the most decadent of desserts. Finally, what's the hope of Christmas future? There's some of you who maybe are, are, are sitting here and thinking, well, you know, James, this is all well and good, but I've been a Christian for years. I know these truths. I, I, I think about them often, but I still feel anxious or depressed. I still feel restless. I still feel that I don't have what it says here in verse five. I still don't have that sort of peace. And so at this point, I'm going to be a wee bit pedantic about what, what, where we are in the liturgical year, which is very rare for Presbyterians because we don't really do the whole liturgy calendar thing. But some of you who are Anglican can correct me on the door if I say anything wrong. But technically, this isn't Christmas yet. Technically, this isn't Christmas yet. Uh, if we're going to be pedantic, the season we are in currently is Advent. Advent. And the season of Advent is a season in the Christian church where every year we look forward. And in much the way that these folks in Micah's time looked forward to the future coming king, in Advent, what we are concerned about is looking forward to the return of our future coming king, who came once in humility, but when he returns will come in glory. In Advent, we are reminded of the fact that this world is not as it should be. In Advent, we are reminded that sin has tainted the ground. We are reminded that thorns grow. We are reminded that we will not have a perfect peace in this life. We are reminded that sin has entered in. But with Advent, we look forward because we know that there's a hope that comes with Christmas that we have been given a savior from all of the pollution and destruction that sin has brought and that he comes to us humbly and meekly as a child in a manger, but he will return to us at the second advent as a king crowned in glory. And as Christians, we look forward to that day with hope and expectancy. So Christmas is not just hope for a lot of people who were in the desert 2,000 years ago. It's a hope for us now. 
about what Jesus can do in our lives now. And it's a hope for what he will do when he returns in glory. Would we fix our eyes on that this morning and give him all the praise? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus' return. And Lord, as we reflect upon his first coming, Lord, would we look forward with expectancy to his second coming when he will come with all glory and would we praise him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.